Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Please keep in mind, this is not medical advice, so please don't try to diagnose weird things on anyone's eyes. Each week, we take a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. And this week, we're discussing a topic that isn't in our editions of the BCSC, but it probably will be in a little while, and it's one that all ophthalmologists should be aware of. And it's a recently recognized retinal entity that's been called pentosin polysulfate maculopathy. To help us learn about this newly identified problem, we bring on special guest host, Dr. Naraj Jain, the doctor who discovered this disease and is certainly the world expert on it. He did his residency and chief residency at the Duke Eye Center and then our Venture Retinal Surgery Fellowship at the Kellogg Eye Center at the University of Michigan, and finally an Ophthalmic Genetics Fellowship at the KC Eye Institute at OHSU. Now, he's a vitreoretinal retinal surgeon at the Emory Eye Center. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Jane. Thanks for having me on. So to introduce folks who may have never heard of this, but we hope that everyone sees the importance of understanding what this is, can you describe to us the first patient or first few patients that presented to you that made you suspicious of this disease? Yeah, there was a... 60-ish year old lady who was, I was seeing in my ophthalmic genetics clinic who was referred for a diagnosis of pattern dystrophy. She had this very unique pattern of pigment changes in the macula, no family history of disease, and was on a number of medications. And one of the medications was this drug listed as Elmeron on her medication list. And something it kind of triggered something that I felt like I had seen that medication before and uh, started to wonder if maybe that could be playing a role in her very unique condition. You mentioned that you'd seen it before. Was that sort of a few times around that it may have made you suspicious that maybe this drug was implicated or may have been affected or related? Yeah, you know, at the time, uh, I had actually seen this a number of times. I I didn't realize it. It just seemed like a familiar drug. And, you know, to be honest, in in our retinal degeneration clinic, we're always kind of thinking about drug toxicities kind of in the back of our minds because we see a lot of unique degenerations that are often hereditary. And many times we can't reach a genetic diagnosis. Remember that in 30% of the cases of hereditary retinopathies, we don't reach a firm genetic diagnosis. And like hereditary retinopathies, drug toxicities tend to be very symmetric between eyes. And so for that reason, uh, we're often kind of scanning medication lists when people come in with unique or undiagnosed retinal degenerations. So, you know, you had this suspicion about this medication, but like what, what did you start doing to investigate whether it could potentially be a culprit? Yeah, so like many good doctors, uh, when I'm stumped, I go to PubMed. And, uh, and even sometimes go to Google or Google Scholar. And on PubMed, I must have punched in something like pentosin polysulfate and retina, and nothing came up. And at that point, that was kind of the end of the story for me at first. I kind of figured if it's not on PubMed, it, it, it doesn't exist. And I think there's a lesson there for trainees. You know, oftentimes during training, you find that you have an unanswered question that Nobody, none of your attendings or no book is, is, is providing the answer for you. And I just say that don't, don't assume that there's someone out there that has the answer. Sometimes this may be a valuable new area of investigation. And 
for me, kind of on a whim, I was on a Saturday morning, I was uh, waiting for my son to get ready to go to a birthday party. I just thought, well, maybe I can, uh, you know, just do a query of our uh, electronic medical record and search by drug. And I, I didn't have my hopes too high. Usually the EMRs that I work with are are not always helpful in those ways. Um, but to my surprise, it was actually real quite simple. I just had this advanced search function. I put in a couple year time window and punched in the name Elmeron and I got a quick return of about 40 patients and scanned the list. And many of them, many of the names looked familiar to me because they had been my patients. And I went, went into their imaging records and many of them had this very similar, very unique uh, maculopathy. And that's where it all started. And uh-huh. um, from there, I teamed up with one of our really talented uh, vitro-retinal fellows, Will Pierce. And the, the two of us kind of went on kind of dig- digging into this. And uh, Will, of course, did a lot of the really tough work of making our case that this was a novel finding. Wow. I'm glad your son took extra time to get ready for that birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> Nope. We yes, that's often the case. We're <laughs> waiting around for our kids. <laughs> but yeah, you should, I hope he's a co-author. Well. You know, <laughs> yeah. So one of these days, at least I can. I could have at least put him in the acknowledgments. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so this next question, we know that might be a little unfair to ask since you're not a urologist, of course. But do you, could you tell our audience a little bit, Dr. Jane, about what even is this drug? We've been calling it Elmeron so far, but its uh, generic name, I understand, is pentosin polysulfate, and I understand it is typically prescribed by urologists. Is that correct? That's right, and I'll I'll do my best to uh, describe this drug. It's uh, so it's prescribed by urologists and gynecologists and, and urogynecologists. Mm. It's used for this condition known as interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome, and this is a regional pain syndrome of the pelvis. It can be quite debilitating for many patients who are, are suffering from it with pain and urinary frequency and urgency, and it predominantly affects women. This drug, pentosin polysulfate, has been around since the 1950s, as, as far as I can find, and for several decades it's been used for interstitial cystitis. It, it only achieved its uh, FDA approval in 1996, but it's still been uh, FDA approved for 25 years now. Uh, the drug is thought to bind to the bladder uroepithelium, uh, basically protecting or buffering it from irritants uh, in the urine. And there's probably you know, many thousands or hundreds of thousands of patients have, that have used this drug you know, over the past couple decades. So if so many patients have used it and it's you know been approved for more than 20 years by the FDA, why do you think it, this process hasn't been recognized until now? Yeah, the you know many times with new drugs, you know right after they're approved, clinicians in post-marketing studies become aware of new potential uh, toxicities, and that that wasn't the case here. Yeah, it took quite quite some time, and I think. The, the first reason is that it probably takes a while to develop. In our largest series um, to date, the median duration of exposure to the drug was over 10 years. Mm. The, the other issues, I think that in the 90s and early 2000s, we didn't have the fundus imaging technologies that are so uh, valuable to detect this, uh, this condition. Mm. Things like fundus autofluorescence imaging and near-infrared reflectance imaging 
haven't really been widely used till say around you know 20, 2010. The the other thing I, I think I would highlight is that many of these patients were given a diagnosis of AMD or pattern dystrophy, and as a clinician, it's uh, my, for my, myself and others, it's it's frustrating when we have these kind of unknown retinal degenerations, and we we always like to give a patient a diagnosis. And I've used this pattern dystrophy diagnosis as, as a crutch in the past. It's kind of a grab bag diagnosis that I think we use for patients who have a, you know, pigment changes in the macula that don't exactly look like AMD. And I think the problem there is once you give someone a diagnosis, you kind of close the, the book on the, the diagnostic quest for that patient. Uh, something I think there's this type of bias in medicine we call anchoring bias where you know, once you think of a diagnosis, you're mentally kind of anchored to that that diagnosis and uh, stop searching for new answers. And in my practice today, I, I generally try and avoid using that term of pattern dystrophy. I try and use more uh, kind of nonspecific descriptors when I'm trying to, you know, describe a condition that I haven't diagnosed. I'm just chuckling at the idea of being anchored to a specific disease, feeling a little called out here doing glaucoma. <laughs> but it is very specific. Um, another, I guess, question for you, Dr. Jane. Certainly as a pioneer in identifying this, it's really cool that we can talk to you, the person who really pointed this out for the first time. I wonder what it's like to be that sort of first one to the base and wondering what sort of feedback you've been receiving from the broader world of medicine or maybe even the broader world of the biomedical industry about your initial reports. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just glad we came to this uh, diagnosis. And, you know, obviously for our patients, it would have been nice if we had uh, reached this uh, diagnosis uh, sooner. I've seen a lot of patients who live in the Atlanta area or even who have been referred from throughout the region because... We, we've seen as many of these patients as anyone, and we feel a real obligation to our patients to just do do good work with our studies, um, be kind of intellectually honest, keep searching for answers, and uh, always you know thinking about uh, are there new ways that we we can help folks, which which is often difficult in these degenerative macular conditions. So you know, I think that's a great introduction to what why it's important to know about this disease. Can you tell us what the features of this maculopathy are so that hopefully your trainees might be able to recognize it? Yes. So uh, first I would say that using uh, an array of modern fundus imaging is really important in diagnosing this condition. When you Usually you'll get a woman with a history of interstitial cystitis who may be complaining of difficulty adjusting to dim lighting or difficulty reading. And when you look in at the fundus, the uh, exam findings are often quite subtle. In early disease, you may see some pigment clumps amidst a background of yellowish deposits uh, in the perifoveal region. In more advanced cases, you may see patches of RPE atrophy also involving the perifoveal region that can coalesce and, and involve the foveal center in more advanced disease. But it's really when you do the, the uh, advanced modern uh, imaging that you really, uh, the, these findings really stand out. Fundus autofluorescence imaging is quite specific to this condition. 
and you see a pattern of hyper and hypo autofluorescent spots kind of densely packed, predominantly impacting the posterior pole. These findings are symmetric, they involve the fovea, and in some cases extend out to the retinal periphery. And I think that's a, a common finding for degenerative retinal conditions where fundus autofluorescence imaging will highlight some features of the disease that you may not see on examination alone. And then I think near-infrared reflectance imaging, which not everyone has, can be helpful in detecting early disease. Uh, there's ourselves and uh, multiple other groups have described finding very subtle alterations in reflectance patterns in the macula in patients with early pentosin polysulfate maculopathy. The challenge here is that uh, we as a, as a field haven't really hashed out all the manifestations of other, other diseases on near-infrared reflectance imaging, so I think it's still uh, somewhat nonspecific uh, changes. Great. So, you know, a lot of what you're describing to me sounds like it, it could be mistaken for something like macular degeneration or, you know, other macular dystrophies, uh, you know, the paracentral nature of it, RP loss, you know, clumps of yellow stuff with hyperpigmentation among it. How do you distinguish between macular degeneration and this macula and the pentosin polysulfate maculopathy? Yes, yeah, so that's exactly right. In our early papers, the uh, these patients, the most common diagnosis they came in with was macular degeneration or pattern dystrophy. The majority of the patients had that diagnosis, and it can be difficult to differentiate. In macular degeneration, in particular, it's it's so common in this age group. You know, most of these patients with pentosin polysulfate maculopathy are kind of in the in their fifties and sixties, and um, that's getting to where people start you know, developing macular changes suggestive of, of AMD. And the first thing I think is the fundus autofluorescence imaging findings are quite striking and different. And it's, it's a pattern recognition thing. When you look at it, you, you'll know that this is not typical AMD. When you get the very early cases of PPS maculopathy, that's where it can be pretty difficult to differentiate from AMD. OCT imaging can be particularly helpful in those cases. You remember in AMD, you will often see drusen, which is a classic hallmark feature of uh, AMD. And usually you see these uh, the accumulations of material underneath the RPE with drusen. Or you can see subretinal drusenoid deposits, which are kind of on top of the RPE. In this condition, we see hyperreflectant nodular changes that appear to be at the level of the RPE itself. And these lesions cast a shadow onto the underlying choroid. And I think that is a not a very specific finding to this condition, but it can be quite helpful in differentiating from AMD. And interesting, I'll also add that in our cases, we don't we haven't been seeing drusen in these patients with PPS maculopathy. And I don't know what that's all about. Maybe it's just a matter of time before we see it, but we're not seeing typical drusen even in our older patients with this condition. And what about manage, like, you know, when you've identified a patient with this condition, you know, how do you follow them? Or if, do you have any screening criteria for patients who are on the medication but don't have obvious maculopathy yet? Yes, so these patients typically have been on the drug for many years. We're talking uh, close to 10 or over 10 years. Um, We've described one patient with this condition after three years of exposure to the drug. 
And so in terms of screening, the key question is how often should we, we be bringing these patients in? Initially, we suggested that patients after their baseline exam should come back in after three to five years of being on the drug. Over time, we've kind of revised our guidelines to just saying that patients should be coming in for an exam every year, basically, including a baseline visit when they start the drug. And for this question, we kind of see parallels with the pandemic. When, when you're talking about getting a public health message out, you're not always going to go based on strict scientific facts, but you also have to uh, consider the practicalities of uh, how, do you, how do you keep messaging simple in a way that people will abide by them. And if we have patients coming in every year, that, that just makes it a simpler message for patients and clinicians to, to abide by. But also, you know, with time, we may find that some patients are developing this condition at, at earlier exposures, particularly as we implement more broad screening across, across the country. And uh, lastly, I think each time a patient comes in for screening, it's an opportunity to re-engage with them, re-engage with their prescriber to let them know, hey, you know, you've been on this drug for, for a while now. It may be time to start thinking about taking a lower dose or even transitioning to another therapy. I know that uh, screening guidelines can take a very long time to get ironed out. Just again, speaking from a glaucoma point of view, we've known about glaucoma for so long and still argue about screening things. So I want to commend you, Dr. Jane, on not just identifying this, but also going out of your way to even consider management uh, screening kind of subtleties like that. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, and I think that we've we've experienced it with uh, hydroxychloroquine toxicity. That's the one that's most well known to us. Mm-hmm. I think in in this case, it's I think it's important that we get it right from the start because most of the patients with this condition are going to be identified right now okay this drug's been on the market for decades and so i think as urologists and gynecologists change their prescribing patterns we probably won't see as many of these cases say 10 years from now so we want to really identify these cases that you know many of them are already our patients and so we want to pick up on it now and i feel like I should also mention when we got uh, our introductory lecture about this um, at the University of Iowa, it was actually the urology department talking to us about this in conjunction with our own retina docs. And from what they were telling us, it really sounds like the condition this drug is treated for is really tough to treat. And it sounded like this drug was almost as game-changing, or at least to some degree, quite game-changing on its own, and I could just see the regret on their faces when they were saying, like, yeah, shoot, our best weapon against this might have issues. Yeah, yeah, Andrew, I'm glad you mentioned that. This is the only FDA-approved oral treatment for this condition, and uh, it's tough um, tough to say, you know, say that maybe this, this drug needs to be taken away from some patients um, who are at high risk of vision loss, and I think that in my experience talking to the urology and gynecology community, I've, I've gotten mixed um, feedback. There are some who, who rely heavily on this drug and others who feel that you know, there are other potential uh, behavioral or dietary modifications or other off-label um, therapies that, that may also be helpful. And uh, in fact, there, there has been a recent meta-analysis looking at 
studies on this condition and that, that showed that actually this drug was not superior to placebo in symptom control. And I, I don't know a great deal, you know, the details of, and the nuances of treating these patients, but uh, I think there is uh, probably a broad variability in terms of patients and their treatment responses. Well, uh, going back a little bit, it sounds like uh, from your description to, again, my uneducated non-retina brain, it sounds like these exam findings or the imaging findings are really distinct especially for an experienced interpreter and observer like yourselves. But uh, past that, demonstrating this correlation, a statistical correlation, I'm just curious how your scholastic, uh, I guess, how you initially tried to demonstrate this correlation using the scholarly techniques available to you. Can you tell our young audience a little bit more about the path you set out on? Sure thing. So initially, we were actually met with some skepticism that there's, there's you know, is this really a new thing? You know, if you go on, um, the FDA maintains this uh, database called the MedWatch uh, Federal Adverse Events Reporting System. And we logged this uh, right away when we detected this. But if you go on there, any drug you look at is going to have all kinds of potential side effects that providers have logged. And it's, it's hard to know what's real. And um, when, when we submitted our initial paper to ophthalmology, uh, to, to their credit, the, the reviewers were quite skeptical too, uh, but they, they took it seriously. And we really had to, you know, cross, uh, dot our I's and cross our T's and make sure we got it right. Uh, the, the, one of the main things is we wanted to prove it wasn't another condition. And the condition that uh, came up most frequently was, uh, is this a mitochondrial maculopathy, uh, such as we see in maternally inherited diabetes and deafness syndrome, or MID. And so um, in the initial paper, we uh, genotyped our patients. We did mitochondrial DNA testing uh, to demonstrate that our patients didn't, didn't have the mutation, the point mutation that's most commonly affected uh, uh, in MID. But then um, for, for subsequent studies, we really wanted to hammer out what is, uh, what is, how strong is this association so the first thing we did then was we looked at our local records, our institutional records of Emory, of all patients who had interstitial cystitis. And among those, we looked at how many of them had this unique maculopathy and what drugs they were on to basically pull out in a multivariate uh, logistic regression to pull out which features, drugs, or other medical comorbidities were most strongly associated with this retina condition. And the only thing that came out as statistically significant was the use of Elmeron. And I, I really feel like that answered a, a really crucial question, that it, it's the drug that's most strongly associated with this condition and not the underlying disease. And this is something called indication bias, where you, you can blame a drug for, for a side effect when actually it's the underlying disease that actually uh, is associated with you know another condition in another tissue, and and we know interstitial cystitis patients do have a number of other comorbidities, and and so that is a question that we've commonly gotten: Are you sure it's not just the interstitial cystitis by some um, common pathway um, affecting the the retinal pigment epithelium as well as the bladder uroepithelium? Mm. The the next thing we did is we went to big kind of big data approaches. And 
we did a query of uh, you know, uh, billings cl uh, claims databases and teamed up with a collaborator, uh, Brian Vanderbeek uh, from the University of Pennsylvania. And we queried a billing database that contained millions of patient records and looked at if patients started this medication, how likely were they to have a new diagnosis code of a maculopathy five and seven years later? Now, remember, these are just billing diagnosis codes. There's no billing code for pentosin polysulfate maculopathy. So we had to look at other maculopathies, such as uh, you know, hereditary maculopathies and AMD, and we kind of grouped them together. And we found that there was a trend at five years that these patients, after using the drug for five years, were more likely to have a new diagnosis of a maculopathy. And at seven years, it was statistically significant. And so now we have multiple tiers of different sort of uh, studies demonstrating an association. And then the, the next thing we did is we went straight to the patients. So we uh, teamed up with a online patient network, the interstitial cystitis network, to administer a survey to their readers. And we got almost a thousand response, responses from their readership to the survey asking basic questions about how long they were on the Elmeron and you know, did they have vision symptoms? Or had they seen a retina specialist? Had they been given a diagnosis of a macular disease? And that study, again, showed a dose-response relationship between exposure to pentosin polysulfate and a diagnosis of a macular disease or difficulty reading or uh, being referred to a retina specialist. I've got to say, I really admire that approach, Dr. Jane, because when I see something like a claims-based paper in isolation, I don't really know what to make of it, because like you said, it's so nonspecific, nebulous. But... The way you've approached it from the bird's eye view of the insurance data all the way down to the granularity of your individual patients, I think it's made a strong argument here, and I, I want to commend you again. Oh, thank you. And I also, again, should credit many of our collaborators. And, and, and honestly, it's been a lot of trainees that have driven this, this work forward. You know, I have trainees, uh, people like uh, Will Pierce, who I mentioned, Adam Hanif, who's now a resident at OHSU, uh, Alexa Lee, who's now a retina fellow at uh, UC uh, uh, San Diego. Um, they've done a lot of the hard work to, to make these studies happen. I think uh, it does lead us to another point, though, that you wanted us to be careful about. This is just a correlation so far. It does not imply anything about causation. Is that correct? That's right. You know, uh, causality is, is really uh, difficult to establish. You know, the gold standard would be if you have a placebo-controlled trial that demonstrates uh, significantly greater uh, incidence of maculopathy in the treatment group compared to the placebo group. But uh, honestly, these studies aren't powered for these rare side effects. Uh, we're seeing that right now with this pandemic. So how do you prove that this AstraZeneca vaccine is responsible for these rare venous sinus thrombosis events. And the studies, you know, are empowered for those rare, rare side effects. And so um, it can be very difficult to establish causality. And, uh, you know, one thing you can do is you can do uh, animal studies, um, which, which we're involved with. And another is you 
use a number of other criteria to kind of imply causality. And from the mid-20th century, there was uh, epidemiologist Bradford Hill who enumerated what's now termed the Hill criteria for establishing causality. And he, he did this in reference initially to the smoking and lung cancer debate. And, you know, it's not like they could do a study where they made a bunch of people smoke for some years and then look to see if they had a higher incidence of lung cancer. So, you know, one of the things is you look at um, how consistent are your findings across different studies. And we're finding this association across a number of different types of studies at a number of uh, different institutions. So it's not just at Emory, you know, there's a number of other groups across the country that have established a relationship. Uh, and others, you look at the strength of the association and uh, the paper I referenced, the local institutional paper I referenced earlier that uh, Adam Hanif uh, took charge of, um, showed a very strong relationship between the drug and, and the macular disease. Uh, you look for temporality. Did the, did the macular finding happen after the, the patients were on the drug and also for a, a dose-response relationship? And, and numerous studies have, have demonstrated a dose-response relationship now. So those are some of the kind of criteria that term the Hill criteria that are, have been used. And I think epidemiologists have now have maybe more sophisticated uh, ways of establishing causality. But I think uh, we're getting to the point where we've met a lot of those, um, kind of met the bar for a lot of those uh, criteria. Is there a criteria that you would like to see fulfilled before you can st- start really firmly saying that there's causality here or is there you know is it going to be kind of a nebulous goal for you yeah i think that you know we we at our group we're still pretty conservative in our language i think a number of groups other groups just uh, come right out and just call it pentose and polysulfate toxicity mm-hmm. um you know we have ongoing animal studies that are demonstrating anatomic changes in the rpe as well as functional changes on ERG testing uh, in mice. And I'd like to see um, those studies kind of bear out some more results um, to, you know, are, are they going to show similar findings as what we're seeing in, in, in humans? Um, and I think it will take some time. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, j- just for Andrew and I who are interested in, you know, medical education and patient education, having this wealth of data now, how, how did you alert the medical community and the patient community regarding this potential toxicity? You know, I mean, it's, it's a new thing and it, it must be difficult to try to disseminate that information to others. Yes, that's, that's really key. You know, once you find something like that, um, it's not worth anything until you get the information to your providers and patients. And, and, and the other thing is, unlike many other toxicities, as I mentioned earlier, um, this drug's been around a while, so there's many patients out there right now who are affected by it already, who, many of whom are already our patients. And so we did feel a sense of urgency to kind of get, get the word out. And we were, uh, again, a bit conservative. We wanted to stick to traditional medical and scientific media, and so that means going to medical conferences and uh, publishing and so we did that in both the ophthalmology and the urology and urogynecology realms. So we have a urogynecology colleague, Janelle Foote, who went to um, a urogynecology conference or multiple conferences to present our work. And we wrote a letter to the editor of a prominent urology journal 
describing our findings. Um, uh, as that was our first first thing we did after after um, publishing an ophthalmology. But interestingly, what was most beneficial was when this uh, this founder of this online patient support network, Interstitial Societies Network, when she read that letter to the editor at at uh, this urology journal, she wrote a blog post about about this finding, and that spread the word more effectively than probably than anything that we had done because she had thousands of uh, people uh, reading this blog post. And what I found is over the first year or so afterwards, patients were taking our paper to their ophthalmologists and urologists saying, do I, I read this paper, do I have this condition? And that was maybe one of the most effective ways of, of getting the word out. And I think your, your generation um, is going to be really adept at this sort of thing through things like this podcast and, and um, you know, social media, Instagram, Twitter, etc. At, at kind of getting the word out. And again, uh, we see these parallels with this pandemic now is um, traditional slow scientific publishing has been kind of bypassed um, in, in some ways through kind of preprint, pre-print servers and, and social media. As, as ways of getting getting the word out quickly for uh, time-sensitive things. It's not without consequence, though. I would yeah. certainly not want to be announcing to the world a new thing just for um, eyes for ears. <laughs> well, I, I, I do, honestly, I really do appreciate, you know, the opportunity to, um, to, to be on this podcast with you guys because I do think this is a, really a fantastic platform and another, another opportunity and avenue for us to really get the word out to to your younger listeners yeah we're super happy you were able to come on you know the last thing you know i'd just like to to emphasize again is um you know a lot of a lot of this work has really been pushed forward by by talented students and trainees and um this kind of clinically oriented research is is well suited for for medical students and I've had a, a lot of uh, really benefited from a lot of really talented students who uh, have really helped drive this this research forward, and I'm really appreciative of that. You heard it here. If you are a student out there, go find a new disease. <laughs> <laughs> but don't tweet about it right away. Go through the go through the right avenues first. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't just yeah, don't tweet about it. Yeah, yeah. Pub, like you know, get peer review. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really grateful for your time with us again, Dr. Jane. And before we close out today's episodes, we just want to ask if there's anything else that you wanted uh, our audience to be particularly aware of or any closing thoughts for them. Well, for those, uh, those of you who are still uh, in your training and thinking about career trajectories, I think I'll just put a plug in for inherited retinal diseases. You know, I think that you know, because I have this background in, um, in IRDs as well as retina, I think that helped, uh, enabled me. I was kind of the right, right person in the right position to, uh, be able to recognize this kind of acquired maculopathy. And as you know, this is, uh, a growing field, a lot of things going on with novel therapeutics. Uh, we just need more manpower. And, uh, for those of you who are interested in these types of things and, and enjoy retinal imaging, um, and want to make an r- important contribution, I think uh, it's something you ought to consider uh, pursuing. I am inspired. 
I, I may ask you more about that later on a personal level. <laughs> oh, terrific. Well, you're at a great place, Ben. At uh, uh, Kellogg Eye Center is one of the you know, one of the great IRD centers in this country. So, yeah. you're at a great place. I feel very fortunate to be here. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes Four Ears with Number Four. And if you'd like to support the podcast and hear more content like you just heard with Dr. Naraj Jain, a rating review on iTunes where you found this podcast are really helpful. And thanks for your time. We'll see everyone next week. Bye. Bye.